earlier in this letter to Timothy, Paul has described the role of elders. Now, by way of reminder, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, those are the same words, those are the same roles, the same duties. And you'll see the New Testament kind of use those words interchangeably. They're the same role describing the spiritual leaders of the church, those who are devoted to preaching and teaching, to praying for and governing or ruling the local church. In chapter three of this same letter, he laid out the qualifications for such men what they are supposed to be like in order to be qualified to be pastors or elders, how their lives were to look, that the, that the role of the pastor elder isn't just for anyone. Those men must meet the biblical qualifications because if they don't meet those qualifications, then they are not equipped properly to care for God's church and God has concern for his church. He wants his people to be cared for well. But it also matters to God that the elders, the pastors are cared for as well. And so that's what this morning's sermon is about. And so if you would, let's read beginning at chapter five, verse 17. This is what he writes. Now let the elders, the pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, this is your word and this is what we need. This is the food we are to eat this morning. So Father, we pray that you would feed us by your spirit, that you would nourish our hearts, our souls, our minds, everything about us, that you would point us to Jesus, our savior and our Lord, our king and our shepherd and that we would leave here greatly encouraged that our God is near us and our God is for us and that every promise you have made to us, you have purchased by the blood of your son. They are true and they are true for us. So Lord, we walk by faith and not always by sight. We don't always see you and always see your work around us. But Lord, we walk in faith knowing that what you've said you are doing, you are doing. Father, I pray for those of us here this morning who are, feel like they're hanging by a thread. Strengthen them by your word. Lord, I thank you for this church. And I pray, Father, that while we're here, that those who are struggling, Lord, a brother or a sister, would just come up and encourage them. Point them back to you. 
Lord, may we as your people be careful with our words this morning, with how we speak to one another, with how we treat one another. May everything we think and say and do be honoring to you and and, and building up to our brothers and our sisters here. Lord, we're in a fallen world. And if we can't come to one another, where can we go? So Lord, supernaturally, by your spirit, we pray that you would make this place a home, a haven, a family, fellow soldiers in Christ, brothers and sisters. You have done that. Now may we live in that reality and in obedience to your truth. Work in us, we pray. We need you. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. Now, I want to see three major points in this text. I'm giving you to them now, giving them to you now, because you're going to see them throughout, even if I'm not really double clicking on each one particularly. And I want to give them to you. They're this they're provision, protection, and purity. Provision, protection, and purity. Look how Paul starts. He says that if a church has elders, has pastors who are ruling well, who are directing the affairs of the church as the Lord has called them to in his word, especially those elders whose leadership is the primary preaching and teaching of the the church, of the word, then they should be worthy of double honor. What does he mean by double honor? And really what he's saying is this, church, provide for your pastors. Church, provide for your elders, that those who serve well should be provided for. And the way that he's speaking, the word for honor that he uses here is where we get our word honorarium. What he's saying is this, church, provide financially for your pastors. And so let me, let me say this. You guys take great care of us. We appreciate it. We, we, we notice it. We thank you. We love you even more because of it. This is not me jonesing for a raise. This is me preaching what's next, okay? Good? All right, let's keep going. If you remember the sermon on deacons a few weeks ago, we said that the duty of a deacon is to serve so that the, 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 the pastors can continue in the role that God has given to them that the deacons are to free up the pastors so that they can focus on preaching and on teaching and on praying. That that's my primary job as, as a pastor here is the preaching and the teaching and praying, the spiritual leadership of the church. And that it, if I have to focus my time and my effort and my energy on the other parts that have to happen in a church, then the church is being hindered because my role is not being met as it should. I think that's what Paul's saying here. The same thing that churches, in the way that deacons come alongside so that pastors can do their role, he's saying churches, provide financially for your pastors so that they are not hindered in their role, so that they can focus on preaching and teaching and praying and don't have to focus on, I need another job that will help provide for my family. How am I going to meet this need? How am I going to pay this bill or pay this debt so that the pastors can focus on what they need to do spiritually for the church rather than how they're going to provide for their own family? 
Look, let's be honest. We know that the worries of this world and the worries for money and the concerns for provision can easily creep into our lives, can't they? That we look around at the cost of groceries and at gas and at anything else and we say, what are we gonna do? You know that feeling. We know that feeling. We know what the Bible tells us. Look, God is in control. God is near to you. He is for you. And he owns the cattle on how many hills? A thousand. What's he saying? They're all his. It's all his. And so he's saying to his children, look, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The Lord knows you need those things. And so throughout the scriptures, there's this encouragement to just say, just remember who God is. Remember that he's with you. Remember that he's for you. But let's also recognize the reality that we are forgetful, aren't we? And we can begin to kind of get bogged down with what's going on in this world and how we're going to meet those needs. But what Paul's saying here is, look, church, don't put your pastors in a place where they're having to think through all that. Free them up even financially so that they can do the work before them. Create an environment for them where they are free to do the job of caring for the church spiritually with no doubt, with no concern that the church over which he shepherds will care for them financially. Essentially, all Paul's doing here is calling the church to be faithful to provide for their pastors. We come to verse 19 and Paul calls the church not simply to provide for their pastors, but to protect them. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder, against a pastor, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That one way the church is to protect its pastors is how they listen to rumors or gossip. That if someone comes to the church with an accusation against their pastor, it's not even to be entertained or to believe or be believed unless it comes by more than one witness. What do you think of that? I hear that and I think, it seems kind of dangerous, doesn't it? Does anybody else think that? What if, what if something's going on? What, what do we do with it? Because we know those stories. Those stories are everywhere of pastors abusing their position and abusing people under their position, right? What, you need more than one witness? I think this is why chapter three is so important. The qualifications of an elder, the qualifications of a pastor, they're so often overlooked. Where a church may put in the job description, yeah, you need to meet all, all, all the qualifications of chapter three and first Timothy and then Titus. We need to meet those qualifications that a pastor is supposed to be. But what we're really concerned about, tell me about your education. Where'd you go to school? How many degrees do you have? Tell me about your past experience. Oh, how big's the church that you were coming from? What did you see happen there? Okay, how many years experience do you have? Coming out of seminary, and this kind of becomes a joke among seminary students, you would look at open positions in a church and you'd say, okay, let's see what they're looking for. Well, they're looking for someone with 30 years experience, three PhDs, and they'll pay you $25,000 a year. 30 years experience, okay, so Jesus couldn't pastor that church. Oh, okay, Paul wouldn't make it here. He didn't go to the proper schools. 
And they take oftentimes the qualifications that the Bible actually says to look for and they just set it to the side. What happens when you come to desire education or experience more than the qualities that the Bible prescribes? Bad things. That when an accusation comes against some pastors, you know the church does? They look at it and say, I could totally see that. I could totally see that. I could see pastor so-and-so doing that. But if an elder is qualified according to chapter 3, then the, 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 the accusation should have to be verified by more than one witness. Because you should hear them and just say, time out. I know this person. I've seen their qualifications. I've seen how they live and how they treat their family. We talk to his wife. We talk to his kids. I'm, I'm having trouble believing this. That's the way it should be, and it should be that way because the qualifications of a pastor were paramount to begin with, not simply the education or not simply the experience. But we see in this man what the Lord tells us to look for in a pastor. And so I'm having trouble believing the accusation. But Paul does continue on because can we be fooled sometimes? course we can. So Paul continues on. He says, look, if an accusation comes and you research it and you study and you talk to people and you see what's going on and it ends up that the elder is found to be in sin, verse 20, if they're persisting in sin, if they're going on in this, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if, if a pastor is found to be in sin and he's persistent in that sin, what happens? You bring him up before the church, which is, let's be honest, more awkward than preaching on how a church should provide for their pastors. You bring him up and you say, this is, you know, pastor so-and-so, he is persisting in sin and we're going to rebuke him. And what do you do with a pastor who persists in sin even as the church has come to him and come to him? What do you do with him? He's done. That's the rebuke. That if there is a pastor who messes up and he repents, that's one thing. Just like if there's a Christian who messes up and repents, that's one thing. But persistent sin, no, bring them up. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Look, churches should be those who take sin seriously, shouldn't we? Because if we don't take sin seriously, who's going to? So we talk about it regularly. We talk about sin regularly. I, I think any real church does. We talk about the sins of others. We talk about the sins of our nation, the sins in our culture, but ultimately that's not the end and that's not even the brunt. That's not the meat of the conversation here. Think about how Jesus talked about judging. What did Jesus say? Do not Y'all still here? Do not what? Judge. But he, there is a context to what he's saying. The world likes to take that verse and rip it out and just say, look, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do not judge. First, take the plank out of your own eye so that you can see the what in your brother's eye? The speck. First, take out anything in your life that is hypocritical and sinful. Pull that out so that you can see clearly. And what he's saying is this. Look, 
When you're looking at your brother's sin, but you've got the plank sticking out of yours, what do you need to take care of first? Your sin. So when we're preaching and when we're talking and when we're going through these things, what is the primary sin of which we need to be concerned? Ours. Our own sin, our own struggle, our own doubt, we deal with our sin of utmost importance. So look what Paul's doing. He's setting the bar high for leaders, for pastors, that if they are found persisting in sin, this won't be a private conversation. This will be a a public rebuke. Why? Because we need to be churches that take sin seriously to take our own sins seriously. And if I'm standing up here telling you one thing and doing something else the whole time, you know what you need to do with me? Get me out of here. Why? Because we need to take sins seriously. Paul charges Timothy in verse 21, keep these rules. Do these things. Take sin seriously. Rebuke it and deal with it. Don't cover it up. And don't, don't just throw it to the side. You meet it head on. Meet it face first. But he also says, don't prejudge. In other words, don't come to a situation or with a person with your mind already made up. Don't do that. And don't show partiality in this. Look, don't overlook the sins of those you like. Don't only rebuke the sins of people you don't like. Look, do we do that? Is that a struggle for us? You could have two people standing in front of you doing the exact same thing. One of those people you like, one of them you don't like. You don't particularly care for this person. Let's say they're both dealing with the same sin. How might I talk to them? There'd be a struggle to say something like the guy I don't like, you know, I've always had my doubts about him. I've always had my questions about him. And this just confirms it all. I never felt good about that person. And you see how he's sinning, right? That sin doesn't surprise me. I knew it. But to the guy that I like, you know, I'm not really concerned about this. He means well. I know his heart. He's a good guy. All of us struggle. Each of us has our own sin issues. What would we be doing with that? We're showing partiality, showing favoritism. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't be those people. Don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. But in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the angels, be faithful. In verse 22, he says, Timothy, as you're confirming new elders, as you're, you're laying hands on new elders, new pastors, don't be hasty in doing it. Don't be too quick. Be patient. Take your time to get to know them. Make sure that they meet the the qualifications and don't share in the sins of others. Rather, keep yourself pure. You see, a mark of the church should be its purity. That you and I and us together, we should be striving for holiness and for obedience. And we should be willing to call it out when we're not. Look, many churches don't. And a big reason for that is that their leadership often doesn't. 
Like if a pastor isn't striving for holiness, more than likely the people over which he leads are not going to either. And you're gonna see that in the fruit of their life. I'll sometimes be asked the question, how do you come up with what to preach and what to apply from a biblical text? You wanna know how I do it? This is it. I read it, I think through it, I pray through it, and I think about what I struggle to believe about it. I think about how I struggle to obey it, and then I just preach that. Because I figure you're probably like me in that, that our struggles usually overlap in some ways, and if I need to hear it, you probably need to hear it too. Here's the deal. You and I are fighting the same battles, aren't we? It may look a little different, but we're all fighting the fight of faith, fighting the fight of holiness. Because remember something, shepherds, they're also sheep. You ever thought of that? Shepherds are sheep also. That just like you, I'm fighting and Mike is fighting, the pastors here are fighting the fight of faith. We're in the same battlefield that you are. The battle to believe that God's word is true even when you don't see it. That in those hard days where everything seems broken to remember that God's working even that day out for our good. The fight to believe that sin will not make us happy and this world will never satisfy us and that our joy will be found in Christ. It will be found in purity and in holiness. That's what Paul's calling Timothy to and Ephesus to and First Baptist to to keep ourselves pure. Look, here's a prayer I have for our church, that we would lock arms together and pursue God and fight the fight of faith together. That we won't sit in these seats and we'll look at one another and just say, what's wrong with that guy? How does he struggle with that sin? But we'll say, look, I, I know I know what it's like to fight against sin. I know what it's like to fall to sin. And I know what it's like to have to pray to God, I did it again. Forgive me. Thank you for Jesus. How can I help you battle? How can I help you carry the shield, carry your burden? And that as we share, we don't have to be concerned that the person beside us is going to take what we're telling them and turn it into gossip or fodder for some sort of conversation because we know that what they're going to do is they're going to take that need and they're going to go to the father with it and say, I'm praying for my brother. I'm praying for my sister. God, give me wisdom for how to help them carry this burden. That's what I hope we are. That's what I pray that the Lord is making us to be because if we're not, if that's not who we're going to be, then we've already bought into false teaching. We've already bought into the false teaching that says it's about you and what you do. It's not about grace. It's not about mercy. When we know that it is. So brothers, sisters, you are in incredible need of grace this morning. You are in incredible need of mercy this morning and I am in incredible need of God's mercy this morning. Remember how this letter was written. It's written by Paul to a young pastor named Timothy pastoring a church in Ephesus, a, very, a well-known church. It started out so strong. 
Paul planted this church and it was solid, but in recent years they've been slipping. False teachers have crept in and, and the gospel's kind of taken a sidestep and they're preaching law and works and duty and all these sort of things as the way to be made right with God. But God has brought this young pastor Timothy in there to say, bring it back. Preach the gospel value my word. Paul says, here's the leadership you need. Here's the kind of men to put in there as elders. You're to hold them to a standard. Here's what you need in deacons. Here's the kind of people that you need to serve the church. What a blessing they are. Now, Timothy, it's not just about putting the right people in the right place. This is about you and the elders and the deacons and the church pursuing holiness seeking to live lives in accordance with God's law and word. Don't let your guard down, Timothy. Don't act like sin doesn't matter. Don't show partiality, being hard on the false teachers and going lightly on the elders or on the members who are living in sin. No, sin's a big deal no matter who is doing it. And then he says the sins of some men are conspicuous. They're obvious going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. Look, some people, you can look at them and you just know their sin. They don't hide it. You know what they're doing. You see it. You see how their heart plays out in their hands and in their words. But then there's others. Nobody really knows what's going on in their lives. That may be you. Nobody knows what you're struggling with. Yet one day, all of heaven is going to see that sin. Look, for those of us living in secret sin, the Bible actually says there is no such thing. Sure, your family may not know it yet. The church, as of now, may be unaware, but Jesus said that everything that is concealed will come to light, that one day it will be common knowledge. So let me just make this clear. There is no sin that you can commit that is hidden. There is no sin that only you know about. You can't go in your room. You can't lock the doors. David said, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I hide from your spirit? If I go up to the mountain, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. So listen, God knows all of your sin. Even the things you don't know about yourself, he knows it. He knows every sin in your past. He knows every sin you're struggling with right now, and he knows every sin that you have yet to commit. You ever done something and then looked at yourself and thought, I didn't even think I was capable of that. I'm worse than I thought I was. But understand something. God's never said that. You're not worse than he thinks you are. He is never surprised by your sin. And he knew exactly who you were on the day his son was born in Bethlehem. And he knew exactly what you were going to be struggling with right now on the day that Jesus went to the cross and died. He knew exactly who you would be. Nothing you've done was hidden from him on that day, and nothing you could ever do will surprise him. He knows you better than you know yourself. And even still, he says... I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. 
that if you will believe on him, you will have everlasting life with me. Listen, if you trust in Jesus to save you, he will. If you trust in his blood to purchase forgiveness for your sins, it does. The sins of some of us are obvious. The sins of others will one day be made known, and yet God this very moment knows all of them. And God this very moment loves you more than you could possibly ever fathom. And he has made the way for you to be saved. So put your hope in Jesus. He's the one. Come talk to me later if you want to. We talk about sin regularly because the Bible does. God calls us to fight against it and to know that it only brings death and shame. But when we talk about sin, I hope you're also reminded that in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. There is now no shame for you. There is now no guilt for you that God looks at you, brother or sister in Jesus Christ, and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, that that's what he came to do. And that if you are in Christ, then he has accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection everything you need to be saved, that he has purchased your salvation by his blood. So the call here for you isn't simply to say, hey, do this and do this and live this way, fight the fight of faith and seek purity. Rather, it's to say, no, pursue the joy of the salvation that God has provided for you. Pursue the purity and the righteousness that he has made a reality for you. So what does it look like? What will it look like for you this week? What sin have you started just dabbling in or diving headfirst in? What sins are in your life of which you need to repent? What struggles are in your life that you need encouragement with? accountability with, and nobody else knows. Look around you. God has given you these brothers and sisters right here to fight the fight of faith alongside you. Find someone. Find someone. Go to them. Find someone who's trustworthy. Find someone who believes the gospel in their own need of grace and invite them into the battle with you. Brother or sister, You're not alone. You're not alone.